Welcome to Work Ethics, a series of conversations about building a better future. I'm Tom McCormick, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Aaron Corrine, an interdisciplinary performing artist, certified coach, and creative consultant based in Barcelona, Spain. She blends a passion for service, cross-cultural communication, and community building to create and facilitate educational workshops and community-based initiatives in the arts, creative leadership, and decolonization. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. It's uh, really exciting to have the time to chat about art and creativity and culture and all the different things that you work on and know about. Thank you so much for the invitation, Tom. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, let's just uh, sort of for the audience's background, would you mind sharing a little bit about what brings you to this this moment in your life? A little bit about your your education, your work experience. I know you've traveled. Um, just kind of set the stage and then we can use that as a jumping off point. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually coming off of so many interesting life milestones. Um, I'm say I just had my first child six months ago, um, moved to a new city during the pandemic. That was <laughs> a big thing. And for context by new city, I mean, um, Barcelona, I'm now based in Barcelona. I came from Madrid, the capital of Spain. Before that, it was in Valencia for two years. So I'm coming off of a a huge like year of different milestones, having my first child, making my 10th year anniversary in Spain that I just celebrated last month. And also a big kind of career pivot, not in the sense that I left anything behind or wanted to stop being a performer um, or an artist, because I always, the way I describe people is that my role in the village is an artist. That's how I, that's who I am. That's, um, you know, my, my first language is, is art. Right. And, and my, my, my first medium is music. So, you know, from that jump off point, every other part of my identity is born, right? The idea of implementing other creative elements into other elements of my life, um, discovering that I have a passion and a knack for writing that has turned into a really important asset as well. Um, and just basically deciding that I wanted to formalize a way of showing up as a leader that I had been basically doing since I was about 17 years old when I taught my first private lessons, which is coaching. So that's how I came into coaching is recognizing that some version of this I've been doing most of my adult life, actually just before I became a legal adult, um, when I started teaching at 17, and then realizing that I'm not just a teacher, I'm not just a guide or a mentor. I also I love to coach people. I really love to show up for, for folks in that way, in that critical stage of you know, when you're questioning yourself, when you're about to jump into something new, when you're really needing to come for those limiting beliefs that keep you from doing what you are 100% capable of, whether it's because you were trained in that area, whether it's because it's something that's really important and you're passionate about, or if it's just a path you choose and maybe you're not amazing at it yet and you just want to pursue it, right? I realized that I was always somehow ending up appearing in people's lives right when they need that push off that cliff into the next best version of themselves. And so I decided to formalize that training, become a coach, starting with a life coach, then moving um, and expanding into being um, a creative coach, because again, that first language piece, that's where I come from. And just recognizing that I really wanted to build something of a creative container that really does embody every aspect of the process of discovering who you are as a professional and who you are as an individual and implementing creative tools to get yourself to that next phase and get yourself to that next area. So that's how I 
got to where I'm at now, where I am still a performing artist. I'm still, you know, because I always will be. That's who I am. And I don't cease to become my, be myself just because I express it in a different way. And also being a business owner, hopefully later in scaling some things and building some evergreen content around the methods that I use to really accompany people in that process. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can pull the veil back on some of those the, the secret sauce that you have to to help people in their in their career and their creative journeys. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because we had a conversation before about creativity, and it was so eye opening and interesting and just unique from other conversations I've had. So I wanted to start there. You mentioned creativity a couple times just now, and I'm curious if you could define creativity because. Lots of people think about that in a lot of different ways, and there's probably a lot of cultural and personal and social factors that determine how we think about creativity. But for you, what's sort of a working definition or a way of understanding creativity? Yeah, that's such a it's it's such a controversial question because you know a lot of people's first reaction when you ask them or when you mention create when you say creativity, just saying the word creativity. It's like, you know, like somebody just opened up a window and it's too much light kind of. They're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not a creative. Oh, no, I'm not a creative person. Oh, no, I'm not an artist, right? There's this initial, oh, no, but I'm not, but I'm not, but I'm not, you know, these disqualifiers. Um, And, you know, my pushback, not only as a creative coach, but as a person who has had to find ways to channel the parts of me that I consider to be strengths, that I consider to be assets, I've had to channel that in different aspects of my life. And also there's times where I have not had to, and it just appears, right? That way, that way of thinking. And so my way of, of, I guess, defining creativity is, or not even defining, but classifying creativity is to say, it's not about an ability. It's a way of walking through the world. Okay. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a concrete hard skill that you can say, this is what it means to be creative. This is creative, right? Um, this is like, you know, as though, oh, I know how to use Microsoft Word. I know how to be creative. Mm, I don't think we're being creative so much as we are walking through the world in a creative manner or walking or thinking through things or approaching problems from a creative perspective. So creativity is a way of walking through the world. That's a great entry point into several other questions that I have. So one would be, it sounds like part of it is kind of a mindset. And then it's probably also something that you cultivate over time. So what are the methods that you use or the ways that you approach these conversations with people when you're trying to help their creativity come to the surface or blossom or give them more confidence in it? I'm just curious what your approach is if they're not walking through the world in that creative manner that you mentioned, how do you put them on that path where they start to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So interestingly enough, I, I, you know, a slight tangent to kind of set up the response to this question is that when I divide up the types of people that I work with, I think that the, the overarching theme is as in it, this is something that I write on the tagline on my website. I work with high impact creatives and creative minded individuals or professionals as well, right? I work with high impact individuals to implement creative tools in you know, these really critical moments of their stage development, you know, usually advanced career stage pivoting or people that do consider themselves to be professional creators or professional artists, right? I, I really emphasize high impact, meaning someone that considers themselves to be a professional of some sort, that they're 
operating in their zone of genius in some way and that they are, and I can't remember whose term that is zone of genius. I'll come back to that later because it's really important that I remember who that comes from. But I did remember that term by way of Rachel Rogers when I was reading her book, We Should All Be Millionaires. So I'll remember, well, remind me to come back to that whose phrase that is um, zone of genius, but people that are operating in knowingly operating in their zone of genius and are just really, really looking forward to take everything they already do in an amazing level in an amazing way with consistency and professionality, whatever that means to you, taking it to the next level. So because I work with people that do consider themselves creatives as a profession, like I am an artist, I'm a designer, I am a creative business owner, as in like maybe I own a music school or I am a musician or whatever the case, right? People, these stereotypical, I am an artist, therefore I am a creative. I also work however, with people that are insanely good at what they do, right? Obviously, there's people that may be high-level leaders, C-suite leaders, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, people that are like in that in that orbit, and just really working with them to implement these creative tools, right? And so there's two ways to approach this. Someone who works in something that's artistic, there's not a guarantee that they're necessarily approaching this in a creative manner. Because how many times have we heard musicians or seen artists that do you know, artwork of any sort. And you're like, I know technically this is good, right? I know that this is, it requires an insane amount of skill to play this piece, to paint this painting, to make this photograph, to design this website, but something's not speaking to me. Something about this is not, it's not my thing. And that can be a matter of taste, but I think people that are used to consuming a particular thing, you know that there's something, there could be something off. We flip to the other side, then you have people that are not in these stereotypical or these kind of so-called creative fields, right? Maybe someone that works in a Fortune 500 company, someone that works in a restaurant, someone that, you know, does something that you don't consider to be an artistic or a creative field, quote unquote. But something about everything they do is just art. It's just, you know, mindfully crafted. It has the essence of that person in it. It you can see their personality. You can see the passion that they have for the work that they do by just looking at their product or by walking into their store or by sitting down at their restaurant, right? And so the common thread between these people who are in creative careers that are not necessarily speaking to their audience versus people who are not necessarily in quote unquote, you know, these, these specialized creative fields, but they do everything they do with that essence of themselves. What I like to tell people is that what is at the intersection of who you are and what you do. How can you find a mindful, fluid, and representative way to communicate that and then do that differently tomorrow? And then that do that differently the next day. And then do that differently the next day. Then and be in front of a different audience who may not understand fully what you do. How can you explain that without words just by doing in a way that connects with a totally different audience? right? So as a leader in something that's not a creative field or in a, your own restaurant or a store, how can you channel the energy you have with the seasons or the energy that you have around different groups of people and communicate what you do, which is the same thing you did yesterday in a way that connects with someone else, but still tells them what it is that you do and why it's important to you. On the other side of things, if you're in a creative career and you've been practicing your entire life and you're a machine, you're disciplined, you know your instrument inside and out, you know your uh, medium inside and out. You are an incredible artist. You have a track record, but you're not good at connecting with people. Well, I would ask them the same thing. How can you put more of who you are into what you do and therefore be able to connect with people 
further than just listening to the music, being on the page, giving a speech, whatever the case may be. And usually what's missing on either of those scenarios is the same thing, right? It's that really seeing what's at the intersection of who you are and what you do and being able to adapt that to any situation, whether it's a performance or providing a service or leading a team that could poss- you could possibly find yourself in. So a couple of the themes that I'm picking up on, one is like leveling up, pushing to the next level. Another one is perfecting your craft and getting really good at whatever your thing is and continuing to pursue that excellence. And then the authenticity piece that you talked about of connecting who you really are to the work. So it has that soul, so to speak, um, whatever the thing is that you're putting out. And um, that raises a couple more questions for me that I'd love to dig into. One is what blocks do you think there are for people in terms of the leveling up part, starting there, like pushing to the next level. It's interesting because I was just watching tennis recently and every player was talking about taking it to the next level and bringing their, their level of play to the next level. And um, I'm just curious what prevents people from doing that. I have some theories of my own, but I'm curious what you've experienced with the folks you've worked with. Yeah. So again, I can, I can definitely see, both kind of a, a, a very binary way of looking at this, like there's a ceiling or there isn't a ceiling, right? There is a next level or there isn't a next level, whether that's, you know, a euphemism for, you know, a position open or a euphemism for anyone ever has ever done that thing before, right? So there's that actual tangible ceiling. Can Is there another level to get to, right? Then I would say on the more kind of artistic art, you know, kind of like the, the way we'd say artsy fartsy, right? Like the really romantic, like the way people visualize artists as being zero grounded and just romantic in a really completely like unrealistic way um, is thinking about there's also this conceptual idea of if you can visualize it, you can attain it, right? So there's this, there's this, this juxtaposition between tangible barriers and intangible barriers, even if we're just talking about the way we phrase it. And so I think, you know, when I think about going to the next level, obviously as coaches, you know this as well as I do, we work with a lot of, we work on a lot of limiting beliefs with people. We work on a lot of working these issues from the inside out, obviously taking inclusivity considerations into account because we have to, and then like this is something we'll probably talk about later. We have to consider everyone's individual circumstances. What is the reason why those limiting beliefs are there? Who is reinforcing these limiting beliefs and how we can mold a plan of action or allow that person because we're coaches not counselors right mold that plan of action or or witness someone or accompany someone molding that plan of action in in really accompanying them in that process so for me sometimes it's a matter of visualization right do you see what's on the other side do you know what you want on the other side of where you are right now can you breathe it can you write it down do you have the words to express it is that there really Right. So that's, you know, the visualization piece. And, you know, there may be limiting beliefs and blocks, mental blocks and different challenges that come up when you even try to visualize. Right. How can you visualize what you've never seen? Maybe you're a person of color wanting to, you know, arrive to this next level in the company, but you've never seen a person of color do that role. And that subconsciously affects your ability to visualize visualize that that means. I can use an example of being someone who's a former classical musician. Most of my formal training is in classical music as a, as a musician. I had hardly seen Black musicians in classical music at that level. I hadn't seen soloists. I hadn't seen. And now it's interesting because, you know, if I were a teenager now, 
I would know of the Gill brothers who are from Chicago even. And one of them, Damare Gill, he is the principal flutist of the Seattle Symphony. It's incredible because if I had known he existed when I was younger, that might've given me something to even subconsciously aspire to because I could visualize it because it exists, right? It's there. I can see me represented. And so, you know, getting through, you know, that limiting belief might come up if I had been coached 15, 20 years ago the idea of my coach realizing that maybe she hasn't seen this. Maybe she can visualize it because she's never seen it. And that might not even be something I'd even considered thinking that for some reason, the feeling is off. You know, my connection to this outcome is off. I don't know why. And that a skilled coach would be able to probably get me to that conclusion and realize, oh, of course I can't visualize it. I've never seen it. You know what I'm saying? It takes years to get to the point where you can visualize the, the, the intangible, where you can create something out of nothing emphasis on create right because this is the key skill we're talking about is creativity the ability to materialize to generate to manifest things where the materials to build those things was not there where it's not there you know and so you know on the other side of things when there really is that possibility right you've seen the representation you know that exists then that taking it to the next level becomes what the person on the other side was missing when before they couldn't somehow get their heart into their performing. They weren't able to um, really show who they are as technically talented and gifted and skilled as they are. Something's missing, part of them isn't there. Well, that becomes the challenge of leveling up on the other side. You have all the skills, the position exists, it's there. You know this can be done, but something is keeping you behind. Well, then usually it's a matter of trying to figure out what is keeping you from dedicating that time day in and day out? What is keeping you where you're at that has to do more with your process, that has more to do with the support system around you, that has more to do with the actual knit and grit of sitting down and just doing the work. What's the limiting belief around there or the lack of resources there? You know, So again, it, this binary thought keeps coming up here because most of the people I work with tend to fit in one of those two areas or over the course of working together, we're working from the inability to do the work than to the inability to visualize that intended outcome, right? So it definitely tends to go from either one or the other or from one side to the other and then kind of getting to this breakthrough, aha, and suddenly this person has worked themselves to a point where they've been able to really implement everything we've been working on and just fly, just literally jump off that cliff and suddenly like, wow, at least for what I'm willing to do right now, I've broken through the ceiling. I've taken it to the next level because I understand how to visualize that thing right? See myself at that end point. And then now I know also how to channel that activation energy and get myself to sit down and work on this a little bit every day. I know how to practice in a way that doesn't waste hours and hours and hours of my time more than the hours and hours and hours that are necessary to actually build this thing. So multi is definitely a loaded question, as you can tell. But yeah, that's for me, these, these two different ways of leveling up and how to attack them and challenge them, whether you already have the creative skills, whether you are a quote unquote creative or not. Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot in that answer that I want to delve into even a little bit more. The thing that it made me think of initially was you talked about creating something from nothing and that being one of the acts of creation or creativity and you know, how do you it reminds me of literally the beginning of the universe. There's this question of like how the heck did everything get created in the be, in the beginning, whenever that was and however that happened. And it seems like this is a microcosm of that to me, like life came from nothing. And as far as we know, there were just like a bunch of there's a bunch of atoms or matter or whatever. And then 
eventually life arose out of that. So there's this mystery of that creative spark or jump when all of a sudden life starts propagating itself. And I'm curious for the individual, you know, there's so many different things that could be getting in the way or contributing to that, that aha or that light bulb or that breakthrough that you talked about. And how, so how do you identify that in a person or how does somebody identify that in themselves? Because I always say like, if you're going to make a a professional or a career transformation of some kind, it's always going to involve a personal transformation, which is, I think what you were getting at, you know, it's like, you have to look internally. I love that you said work from the inside out, because I think that's absolutely the, the way to actually make significant changes. But I think the mechanism for that is murky for people at best, you know, and it's been like that for me quite a bit in, in my own professional career in my life. And, you know, in most of my conversations, coaching conversations, I can sense that that's very murky or nebulous for people. And sometimes it's just like trial and error. You kind of talk about some things and explore and dig and see if you hit on anything. But I'm curious how you try to find that and facilitate that sort of growth. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about this idea of, um, you know, that it stuck with you, the, this, this tenant that I have of working from the inside out. It's interesting, though, I do find that sometimes the problem arises, the problem that needs problem, you know, I mean that very in the operative manner, like not that, that these challenges have to be classified as problems, but let's say in the scientific, you know, aspect that there's a problem, which is why someone calls a coach, there's some a challenge or something that someone needs to work through. I do find, however, that normally the problem arises from an external, like an, like working from an outside to inside issue, right? Something in someone's environment is working on their insides, right? It's something that's kind of, you know, it's, it's turning their insides. It's like kind of moving things in places that they're not supposed to be and they're starting to feel out of alignment, right? This is the whole concept of malignment, this whole concept of suddenly you don't feel that you're in the right space. And so it's interesting to consider that normally the catalyzer for this internal work is something is, is that outside to inside push, right? And then we start working from the inside out in order to redesign, to use that word, because I do as, as a, the life coach aspect of my work, which is always, no matter what type of creative or what level, we always pretty much start with some element of life coaching, because I do think it's fundamental. And we move to life design, which to me is that, you know, that you're finally getting to the, the margin of the problem and you're able to expand that margin to be able to include and recreate, redesign the space that you need in order to thrive with what you've worked on from the inside out. So I just wanted to, to acknowledge that comment that you made and say that. Interestingly enough, though, I think we get the problems from the pressure that comes from the outside on our inside. So, you know, to answer this question about really focusing on how to, to start to kind of identify these energies. And so, you know, I think it comes down to that really basic concept of potential. Fun fact, I, before I decided... 100% that I was dedicating my life to music for the rest of my life um, in some capacity um, would be the modifier, obviously, but I knew that I wanted to study music in college and that I wanted to be a musician. Like that was clear. Before that, I was going to be a scientist. I was going to be a biologist. So I do have a background and a very deep affinity for science. So I love this analogy of the, you know, the origins of the universe and how mean, how murky that territory is because there's so many things that affect our perception of what this means, that life just kind of sprang out of nowhere. Was there an invisible force? Was it just a scientific reaction? What was it? Anyway, the point is it doesn't matter because I do think it's important to recognize that the fundamental idea is the same. We're all here now and we weren't always. And that's that's the most important thing. And so there's it begs this question of potential, right? And potential energy. 
which is why I gave that disclaimer about science, right? So this idea of potential energy, that, you know, potential energy and potential in and of itself is that it's potential, right? It's a possibility, you know, the possible, some, some, some balance of the possibility and the probability that something happens depending on the different elements that are present in that area, right? The different things that can cause particular reactions. This is something we know, right? Based on even elementary science. And so I guess when it comes to really identifying these different parts of individuals, and because I'm also a multi-passionate interdisciplinary artist and creative entrepreneur, I know my entire life is literally a giant science experiment that synthesizes everything that makes me who I am at the intersection of everything that I do well, right? Because that's fundamental for me and my practice and how I um, even kind of find that thread of compatibility between me and potential clients and continue to, you know, build on that when I have, once I'm working with a client, right? Because it's not just about getting the client, it's about really serving, maintaining, and really continuing to have that feedback with them. And so really it starts with this idea of potential energy. Like what is the catalyzer? What's that external thing that made you start to retreat within and try to figure out, you know, what's missing or where do I need to go? Is it time to go to the next level? Then through that type of dialogue, you tend to have someone talking about, you know, but I'm missing this. You usually get, you know, I'm missing this, at least with my type of clients. I'm missing this, or I have all these things. I'm ready to do something with it, right? These are different cues that usually bring me to the same conclusion. Yes, you're ready to work with a coach, right? And the idea is basically just trying to figure out, pinpoint these things that people, starting with the things they already do, what about your current life? can you not live without? Or are you unwilling to live without? And usually you get these threads into the work that they do do, the elements of the work that they do that they do love, right? Whether that's the rigor, whether that's having a steady paycheck, whether that is the fact that they get to work with artists all day, or that they love the big business of run, the business part of running their, their, their vocal studio, whatever the case may be, right? There's usually that, there, well, this part I love, right? And then there's usually but this part I don't love as much, right? So then you start to build those boundaries or reinforce those boundaries or discover, oh, wow, I have a boundary that I have not been honoring. And then you get to this list of things that people want to take out of the, the, the blueprint of the design of the next phase of their life. Then you get to, okay, what's missing? Okay, so I want to do this. I need to learn this. I feel like I want to go there. I feel like I'm tired of being here, whatever. You start to get these things that someone is like, you know what, this is what's missing, a new new surroundings, a new job, a new boss, whatever the case may be. And then that last little piece, what are parts of you that you've been ignoring, right? What are skills that you have or interests that you just have not had the time to, you want to learn a new instrument. Like in my case, as a musician, I'm starting to work on guitar and bass. And that's something I didn't, I never thought I'd ever get to that point where I wanted to learn extra instruments, but here I am, you know? And so when you get to that question, then it's like, okay, there's all of these potentials, right? There's potential energy in these different areas. There's potential for you to take skills you already have and bring them into this next phase. There's potential for you to say no from now on to things that are not serving you, growing you, period. There's potential here. I have an inkling of these things that I really, really want to do, right? Or places I want to be, or I'm ready to move and I want to go there. And then we have this, this element of these are things that I know I can do or that I have an interest in and I want to see what's there. I want to explore this. So that's kind of the framework for me to start to kind of pull out some hypotheticals, right? And then that potential piece that comes in when you start to actually do the work. 
right? And so really that questioning, you know, spending that really fundamental foundational life coaching time with people to get out those, you know, what are you really interested in? What do you really want? Why aren't you doing that? Tell me with words, why aren't you doing that? Sometimes there's an answer and sometimes there's not, right? And it's just evidence that that work needs to continue to be done. But really, really trying to pull out that potential out of people and really kind of identify these clues that lead us to the next blueprint for the next phase of their lives. It starts with that conversation, right? And just really asking. And then sometimes when they're in fields that I'm familiar with, I start to be able to put it together in my own head and kind of lead the conversation in that direction. And especially if it's a coaching and mentorship relationship, well, I have more spoken permission to kind of really influence that path. If it's pure coaching, then it's just really trying to get them to realize it on their own and ask them those questions so that they do, you know, discover that they already have the answer. Does that make sense? And so it's this long process of long, but very meaningful and very necessary process of having them tell me, you know, what do you have that you love? And what do you love that you need? And it starts there. I'm fascinated by the idea that people seek out coaches because they already know, you know, like you just said, it's already in them. And like, why would you go to the coach? Um, You know, the coach is just going to bring it out of you. So it's sort of just the act of signing up for something or working with a coach of some sort means that you kind of already know. And then you just like need that extra push. Um, Yeah. This is why it's so important for us as coaches to be, to communicate clearly what a coach does. Right. Because some people intuitively know because somebody's offering a program or they call themselves a creative coach or or the other areas that I coach in. Right. Life design or decolonized leadership, whatever the case may be. And you hear certain buzzwords. Right. That boom, they catalyze the potential you already had. And you're like, yeah, I need that. Right. You know, you need that. So, yeah, of course, even if you didn't realize it in the moment that you're attracted to that offer or you're attracted to that coach, um, something in you did. Right. And that's a very different space to be in than someone that probably needs a therapist before they need a coach, you know, and then maybe does needs to do some tandem work with a coach and a therapist until they're able to completely move beyond the therapist and, you know, go on to just coach themselves forward from the point that they're in. Right. But yeah, I do think even subconsciously, most people that are ready to work with a coach subconsciously know they're ready to work with a coach as long as we as coaches are able to fluidly um, and, and thoroughly communicate our value, what we bring it to the table as an individual and what coaching actually is. And that raises the question for me, you mentioned that you started some version of this work in, in music in coaching people and their, their musical performance or musical abilities. How did that evolve? Cause you've obviously gotten to a very almost like spiritual level with your coaching is how I would describe it. Um, a very, very, um, what's the word? holistic holistic and also introspective you know way of way of coaching and so what was that development like for you because you know obviously when you were starting with just the music i don't think you had this full multi-layered like understanding and approach so what what allowed you to build that you know i assume it was a lot of different experiences that you had and just things that you witnessed but i'm curious because obviously you have a really unique perspective on this Thank you so much for that acknowledgement. I, I receive it. I'm getting better at just receiving and not substantiating. So thank you so much for, for that. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right that, you know, it wasn't apparently, it wasn't immediately apparent how much of being a musician or how much of me as a coach was already begin, was already in the works or apparent, 
from the moment that I began to teach in any capacity, that I began to mentor in any capacity, right? Starting with being a music teacher and a tutor from age 17 to 24, before I left for Spain, just before my 25th birthday. So I would say that one of the most important, you know, kind of foundational, um, and this I think serves any creative that's trying to figure out where being a performing artist of some sort or a plastic artist or a fine artist, like literally physically and completely literally being an artist, how that relates to other types of work, whether that's building a coaching business, whether that's building a startup, whether that is stepping into a role that seems unrelated, right? There's this idea of transferable skills, but I think there's also this really important concept of transferable philosophy um, and transferable, again, roles in the village, right? Because like I said earlier in the podcast is that, you know, I always knew that I wanted to be a musician. Music has been a big part of my life, both culturally and spiritually, and even just emotionally um, based on my own experience um, and different things that I, that I um, lived through and pushed through as a, in my adolescence, my childhood and my adolescence. Music was already a big part of my life, but then deciding to do that as a profession is something sometimes you don't fully grasp in the gravity of when you're just being like, I want to major in music, right? There's, that's why a lot of people don't make it, right? In the art, music or any of the arts, that's why a lot of people don't make it because they are not able to, like we said, going back to this intersection, analogy, they're not able to identify what's at the intersection of who they are and what they do, right? This is super important, fundamental for anyone that's taking a passion and making it into a career. Um, so, or the opposite, trying to develop passion for a career that they've chosen, right? For some, maybe a more practical reason, because money, because whatever the case. Um, and so the idea is this, right? That, you know, because music is such a spiritually intensive <laughs> area to work in, right? Music is is culture. Music is foundational to telling the stories of your culture. It's foundational to communicating in its most primitive forms. It's foundational to celebrating different milestones, celebrations, tragedies in, in communities, right? And it's most primitive, traditional, grassroots function in any culture in the entire world. Music is ceremonial. Music is functional. There is an element of you that has to be present in order to transmit a message, which takes me back to that concept of performing and coaching performers. How do you show physically what you're capable of while also communicating a message in a way that not only informs people, but moves people, right? And that's a whole nother conversation about performance theory, right? But um, and the ability to represent yourself and, and stage presence and all of these things, which is, again, I think this is the area that I started to realize the spiritual component that was present here. So um, it brings me back to the to answer of your question. It started with realizing that I'm not just a musician by trade. I'm a musician in my deep, deepest of deepest heart of hearts and my deepest soul of souls. That is the way that I walk through the world is I am an artist because I communicate in this way. This is the language that I speak. And it happens to be a language that I speak well, which is the idea of performing and representing myself. Now, you might have a performance that's technically better or worse than another in terms of the way you represent your skills. But the way you represent your spirit, that's something that thanks to, and I'm going to name drop <laughs> my um, high school band director. He was the fine arts chair at my high school. And I finally got into his top ensemble my senior year. Charles Staley, you're amazing. You already know. You're like one of my favorite people in the world and a mentor that did so much for me. And he was one of the most important facets or influences on me breaking stage fright because he somehow um, helped me connect the being to the doing of me being a musician. And that was that first seed that made me realize that that identification piece, that 
what you feel about what's coming out of your mouth. Or in that case, in that period of my life, I was only playing flute. I wasn't performing as a vocalist yet. What's coming out of my instrument, that represents me. So it's not about doing it well because this better sound perfect. It's because if not, you're not going to know who I am. If not, you're gonna not, not going to know where I came from. If not, you're gonna not you're not gonna know how I feel today. You know what I'm saying? And I, that was the beginning of kind of my breaking away from classical music and starting to develop this more this wider reaching creative coaching focus because classical music has this way of not allowing you to put that part of you in it. You don't matter. You just have to play it the way it was composed 500 years ago. <laughs> and so that the breakaway is what kind of led into this trying to okay. I'm not doing classical music anymore, but music is my language. That's how I communicate what's on my heart, in my soul, and in my space, in my orbit, in my head, what I'm experiencing, right? So I need another way to channel this. I need another place, another application for this language, this deeply connective body, heart, mind, soul language. I need another space in which to 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 to, to do this. And so that's what led me to other musics and then started to blend that with my pedagogy to teach other people how to create, to create that, you know, that, that, what's the word to create that, um, that common thread, right. To create that, that connector from what they feel in their heart to what they, they feel in their soul to the things that go in their head, the things that they process to connect that shadow work to your light work, you know, and to really express yourself on your own terms and really be able to communicate not only a message, but who you are through the work that you're doing, right? And use that as a more holistic approach to, you know, to working through performance, you know? So at the end of the day, the whole spirituality component, it was already there. I just think the process of reintegrating that into what I was doing beyond classical music, which at the time was my world and I was lost for so many years. I was like, how could I have spent so much time doing this music that now I didn't, you know, that guilt, all of that of quitting and leaving something but knowing that music was still my language, that art was still my language, and that it wasn't a matter of just being like, okay, I better choose a different type of career path or something. No, it was like, how can I implement this philosophy in another area? And that's that's where it started. And so the common thread really is learning that performance is an extension of my spirit. It always has been. And so gradually training people, accompanying people in their own music endeavors right from the get-go and then starting to have these conversations with other types of creatives and finding so many common threads between the way that we all approach the work that makes us feel that moves us as much as it motivates us this made me think wow I think a lot of this is transferable how can I you know implement you know these strategies for coaching performers in music to coaching creatives and then to coaching people that really need creative tools in order to be the best version of themselves and to see themselves in their work rather than just choose work that they then have to cut down and leave things off the table in order to fit into. All of your answers have so many (laughs) sub answers and interesting points within them. So I'm trying to process it all, but I've been thinking about that music. And I think you and I talked about this in a previous conversation too, that that fundamental aspect of music and you hit on it, that it has to do with a way that humans were expressing different aspects of the human condition and the human experience going all the way back to probably even pre-language with, with humans, you know, just whether it's some sort of chanting early on or oming or something like that. And then, it, you know, going through all of these 
iterations over time. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, music, it's a, it's an energy or a vibe, so to speak, that is captured in something very simple, but also very profound at the same time. Like maybe you write, mm-hmm. you know, 500 words and that's your song, or maybe it's a couple hundred words, but you're capturing an entire maybe ethos or an entire like epic of time or something like that. Mm, And the ability to do that, it's an unbelievable synthesis ability. And then that has to connect with people have to connect with it and read that, even though they don't know what that's what they're looking for. But when they experience it, it transcends more of the typical communication pattern of just like, I send you a message, message a, and you receive message a, it's just, it's more all encompassing. Um, So anyway, that was just a beautiful way of describing how, music influence your ability to understand people, understand their motivations, understand how people react and respond to things, and then turn that into something completely different. Because I think that that process of translating a skill set into something totally different is very hard for people to conceptualize, myself included. It's like, I have these skills in this area. How does this apply to this other area? Yeah, that's, that's, that's really the essence of creativity, you know, like, you know, this being the essence of, of what it means to be creative, which is being an alchemist, which is taking two things that have a totally different, uh, they have totally different properties when they're separate, but the moment you put them together, it just creates a whole thing. I tell people all the time that ask me, what brought you to, why Spain, right? Why? And it's like, well, it's because I spent most of my life until, you know, I went to college wondering how in the world my life as a musician was connected to my life as a non-native Spanish speaker who had just started teaching themselves a language at age five and then finally took classes at age 14. How do these two things even fit, you know? And based on my experience up to that time, well, they didn't fit because classical music and Spanish, I was like, yeah, I don't get it. I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is, you know? And, and I didn't have the tools to synthesize those two things. I didn't have the lab, <laughs> the real life lab, you know, to, 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 to experiment with those things. I didn't have, I had neither the privilege nor the tools, you know, to explore what that could have meant. You know, if I'd have gotten to take a trip to Spain when I was first asking myself those questions or to any Spanish speaking country, like all the other kids in my high school that could go on the Spanish club trips and that could go on all of these, you know, class trips and things, maybe I would have seen a different side of what music could have meant to me in the context of a Spanish speaking country. But I had to live so many other experiences and come to so many other truths before I had that opportunity that you know, from the outside, it might look like I took the long way, but I took the way that was right for me, you know, and still ended up at a conclusion that, man, every day, I'm just so grateful that my life unfolded exactly the way I did, because I don't know who I would be otherwise. I might still be, you know, confident in myself. I might still be happy in a career, or I might still be happy playing in that orchestra, despite having never seen myself represented or being a musician, performer, soloist, teacher. Who knows? I might have been totally happy in classical music. But I do think sooner or later, I would have come to that, that, you know, that phase that we were talking about where the outside external piece was putting pressure on my insides. And I would have had to really sit and unpack everything that was going on in order to figure out why suddenly I did not feel fully represented by the world around me. So we've been spending a lot of time kind of focusing on the individual and what they can do and the realizations that they may come to and how that will lead to their professional journey and growth, et cetera. And I've experienced, or I've kind of witnessed this tension between wanting someone to be able to find their own potential 
and sort of pull themselves up by their own bootstrap, bootstrap, sort of this self-help motivational speaker kind of vibe that coaching can have, which I do think is important. And I think it can be very empowering. But the, the tension is that there's also these barriers or obstacles that are much larger than an individual that are at a societal level. So systemic bias and discrimination and historical inequities and all that kind of stuff. How do you square those two things when you're navigating relationships with people and trying to help them reach their potential or get to that next level that we're talking about? Because I struggle with that a little bit in terms of how much to recognize that, but still try to push people at the same time, but push them in a way where they can be successful, even though the, the deck is sort of stacked against people, especially, you know, marginalized people from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, um, inspirational speaking is great. Um, inspirational workshops and, and, and any, you know, these kind of come with me and I'll get you to where you want to go on inspiration alone. Um, no, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. I, I have a lot. I, clearly, I have a lot to say on that because it's just like, how do I articulate this thought? But I think the number one thing to think about is that when you bring then limitations, external limitations, systemic and systematic limitations, you come to this point where you have to accept that inspiration will only take someone at, so far. Beyond that, if they don't have the tools, they won't get to where they need to go. And this is just facts, right? Um, it's like somebody giving you a car with an empty tank of gas and there's no gas station anywhere nearby. That difference between that and someone dropping you off at a gas station where there's a new car waiting with a full tank of gas. It's like, oh, wow. And even if I didn't have a full tank of gas, look at this shiny, beautiful gas station right here. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just so many, there are so many issues with trying to power someone's creative machine, professional machine, um, personal development machine and sense of self, right? On inspiration alone. You then need tools to maintain that machine, right? This whole idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, you ask someone to do that on inspiration alone and maybe they feel so motivated to do that, but if they don't have boots, where are they going to get the bootstraps to pull themselves up by? You know, it's just not going to happen. And I actually, there's a lot of people who use this really good analogy is, you know, that, you know, you, they use shoot, you know, I've seen this. I don't know if you've seen a meme like this on, on actually it's on LinkedIn. I'll send it to you another time, but basically, uh, you know, using shoes to kind of paint this picture of what it means to, you know, basically this picture of equity, right? This idea that, you know, Equity, or sorry, equality is everyone has shoes. Equity is about everyone having the right shoes to get from where they live to where you are all going, right? Different concepts like this, ways to use any analogy, not just shoes, to illustrate the difference between expecting everyone to come to the table with the same set of tools and do the same job, keeping in mind that it takes other people more time, more resources, more money, right? Or whatever the case may be to get shoes in the first place. You know, you can say, use any, you know, type of analogy you could ever want to illustrate this point. But the point of the matter is still the same, that inspiration can only take you up to a certain degree, because if you don't have bootstraps to pull yourself up from, you're still not going to get to that next level. You're not going to get to that starting point where it's like, hey, guys, anybody that gets to this starting point is allowed to come with us on this journey. But 
if you can't get to that starting point, then, you know, so it, it really is a matter for us as coaches as being really mindful about what limitations look like, depending on who you are, who comes into, into the room um, and who comes into our coaching space and really helping them strategize as to what is the formula of inspiration to aspiration and the tools that get you from one side of that to the other that they need in order to get to where they want to be and filling in those gaps accordingly, referring them out as, as, as necessary and, and, you know, innovating and allowing that flexibility for them to take the time, the extra time that they need, or, you know, to actually find the extra resources they need in order to go on that journey in the first place. And that's why I think it's always going to be such an individual process. Whenever you look to somebody else as a model, there are some things that you can take from it, but there's always going to be that unique aspect of your life experience, your education, your work, your networks, your psychology, um, depending on the thing that you're doing. You know, people have some built-in advantages. Maybe it's like their genetics or maybe it's their life experience or maybe it's just something about a job that they had. And then they have disadvantages too. And so that's the beauty of coaching is that every single path is a little bit different, even though there's these broader themes that sometimes it fits into. Um, some of the stuff that you were hitting on with these barriers that people face and the fact that if somebody doesn't have the right tools, they can't get to the next level or achieve their potential. Uh, I, that To me, that ties back into the, the phrase decolonized leadership that you used earlier on in the podcast. And I made a mental note, like, I want to come back to that one because I think that's decolonization is just a constant ongoing and critical part of life in this, in this world. So I'm curious what your approach is to decolonizing leadership or maybe just decolonizing everything. Cause I think, you know, it's obviously it, it is widespread and touches a lot of aspects of our existence. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. A great segue as well. Um, I think, to first to you know because I do think it's really important you know to to say that me as an intersectional integrated diversity equity inclusion practitioner meaning that I work in DEI um, in the context of being a creative in the context of being an artist in the context of being a community mama really because that's that's my role you know is that I I'm an artist and I am a community organizer right that's those are the things the ways that I show up in a community and that does involve education and so. For me, I always love to come from a non-judgmental, um, from a non-judgmental direction when it comes to first of all explaining that external, that very superficial, very foundational uh, definition of decolonization, which is if we take colonization um, and think about it as the concept literally of taking spaces, areas of the earth, cornering them, isolating them, drawing lines, boundaries, um, and frontiers around them borders around them and claiming it right that's the that's literally what colonization is if anybody feels offended by that definition there's something wrong with you because that's literally what it is you know like whether you, there's anything else is very subjective to the way you feel about it right but objectively that is literally what colonization is and so this you know long-standing practice of marginalizing of, of kind of drawing borders around and marginalizing different corners of the world, you know, um, isolating or incorporating into kind of larger powers, larger empires, right? Um, it involves an element of, you know, like you touched on, like you hinted at, right? An element of industrialization. Mm, some will argue modernization, you know, I think whether or not 
the community really needed that in order to thrive in the state that they were in before people came to colonize is definitely a hot topic. It's a hot button conversation. But the point is modernization, industrialization, this idea of, of bringing languages, culture, different, you know, products, commerce, uh, trade of any sort, you know, all of this are, all of these are, you know, aspects of colonization that become kind of the foundations of capitalism and why we live in a world that's so industrialized. It's very advanced and there's some things that are amazing and other things that have been completely catastrophic, right? And so the idea of decolonization is basically reversing all of that. And when I say all of that, I mean all of that, Tom. I mean all of it, right? Even the stuff that we think is good for us, right? Even the stuff that we think has brought our world to a totally different era and has revolutionized life as we know it. Even those things deserve to be on the table, examined, and with all parties, everyone from whom power has been taken away from and to whom power has been given, making a decision together as to what we take off of that table and walk into the future with. So decolonization is, in effect, reversing the effects of colonization, Colonization, I'm sorry, that took power away from certain people, gave it to others, that took influence away from certain people and gave it to others, that took space on the globe, that took land, that took anything you can imagine from other people and gave it to another group or added it to an empire that already had power, that already had wealth, that already had influence, right? And so the idea of decolonization is so multifaceted. It's like you said, it's just like this really overarching conversation that, you know, we have to understand that this is, this is a permeating force in society. Colonization is a permeating force. It is the result of one, many can say greed. (laughs) Sometimes it's been the result maybe of just the desire to explore, right? But I would say as we view it today and the effects of colonization over the course of millennia has been overarchingly, overwhelmingly detrimental um, to the point where why do we decolonize? Why as a leader is it important to understand what it is to decolonize? Well, because it basically invites in the most organic way possible diversity, representation, equity, identity, and belonging into the room. It forces us to come face to face with what we identify with and why. Were we told that this is who we are or do we know deep down in our core that this is who we are? And really putting that on the table. How do pieces of me interact with pieces of you? How do we both participate in a conversation, come to a consensus, and decide how to address key issues in our society, in our organization, in our relationship, right? Whether colleagues or us with our families or whatever the case may be. So when we talk about the social, the social question that is decolonization, it is in the very its most pure form because colonization is very much about geographical displacement. It's very much about creating diasporas where they didn't exist before, as in forced migratory lines that are the result of the slave trade, that are the result of uh, mass migration because of poverty, because of hunger, any particular thing that could have happened in any particular community that created like a mass exodus, you know, or a refugee exodus from different parts of the world because of war, because of famine, because of colonization, whatever the case may be. So in its core, we're talking very much about race. We're talking about class. We're talking about a return to the way things were before colonization became the standard operating procedure of society, which is, I see this thing, I want this thing, and I'm taking this thing, right? Something that has, over the course of time, destroyed family ties, has destroyed 
entire kind of like peace treaties between civilizations, right? Most of Europe, <laughs> most of the borders are a result of fights <laughs> that people had. And so people migrated and created their own countries and kingdoms and cultures and things like that, right? And we, as um, Black and Indigenous people, were kind of forced into those conflicts. We were forced to see each other as others. We were forced to um, you know, resolve conflicts in a way that was not our nature, which is, you know, kind of talks about that question of different tribes and different cult ethnic groups and different social groups um, betraying each other in order to get what people from Europe were bringing, right? And that becoming that seed of colonization that is betrayal, that is, how can I get this thing that somebody else has, you know? All of these things that feed into why colonization has become a detriment that has created division, that's created racial divides, that's created this hierarchy that says that I'm better than you because I'm this color or that color, or I have this amount of money versus that amount of money, right? And so this importance of saying, how do we start to scale, not scale back, but walk back this process and the detrimental damage that it's done to society? Well, it is gradually giving power back to people that it was taken away from in favor of someone else. And that starts with bringing people into the room that weren't previously allowed to be there, um, seeing a different way of taking care of, of our earth, whether that's the way we eat, whether that's the way we innovate, whether that's the amount of energy we use, or whether that's the amount of resources that we, that we spend, right? It's looking to ways pre-colonial days, pre-civilization in some aspects, and how we can use that to reverse the damage we've done through colonization. It's a wonderful answer, as uh, as I would have expected. <laughs> and we don't have we don't have time to explore all of the threads that you introduce there, but I'm going to attempt to take us full circle by saying, why does humanity need art? And I think part of what you just described is connected to that answer, you know, or at least the type of art that you that you talk about, right? I'm, there's, I suppose, there's art that's, you know, kind of. Uh, compromised or there's art that's corporatist or something like that but i think there's there's some space here where we're connecting humanity to art to the future that we want that's also related to you know decolonization so i'm curious if you could just speak to why we why we need art why should art exist all why should money go into art why should effort go into art what does it do for us as a this is obviously sort of a rhetorical question but what does it do for us as as humans yeah, it's partially rhetorical and also kind of a matter of interpretation. But I will say, I want to give you some validation of the thread that you just opened as well when you said, you know, I'm sure there's ways to corporatize and there's ways to commercialize and ways to make music an unethical practice or art an unethical practice. Um, and you were onto something, the word you're looking for is classicized, right? Hot button issue. This is a controversial take, right? And I'm willing to take any fall for it because... Um, as having come from a rigorous, classically trained background, I can tell you with certainty that any art form that has gone through the process of classicization has gone through a separation process from its original function, period. That is what like the colonial, in my opinion, and also in my studies and in my experience, um, that classicization phase, any music that's gone through this process of being documented, of being formalized, of being institutionalized of being woven into the fabric of a meritocracy, right? I know this because I have this piece of paper that says I know this versus I know this because I've had this experience that has obligated me to learn this, 
or obligated me to express myself in this way, right? That someone who, this is their traditional music, which is a whole nother hot take, like off the cuff podcast we'd have to do to talk about my experience as a musician in a foreign country doing my native music around people who think they do their native, my native music better than me um, because they're older than me or because they've done more shows than me. And I'm just like, but it's my culture. You know, I am the one who has lived this experience, the same experience that is the reason why this music exists. And so classical music, not just classical music from Europe, but any classicization process, any art that has gone through a classicization phase, right? This formalized, institutionalized transition from function to fashion, right? That music is now living and breathing in a colonial way. And that is just, I, I, I stand really firmly in that, in that, in that um, assessment. And so to answer your question, what is the function of art? And what is the function of having this holistic approach to understanding art? And that's not to say that all applications of classical or classicized music or the classics of anything is bad. It's just understanding how it got to that point of becoming a standard or becoming the standard or becoming the point of reference. It's because somebody decided to studied it, dissected it, put it back together and decided this is the correct way to do this thing. And anything that deviates from this institutionalized iteration of this art form is either not refined enough or it is not socially acceptable. It's not polished enough. It's not representative of who we are as a sophisticated society, right? You know, that's a really important thing to co- to understand. And then we have this next iteration. And this is actually this last few things. This is like a whole nother conversation because this is what I did my grad thesis on. Actually, my master's on is this idea of moving from the roots of any music, right? It's intended function or any art to its classicized phase when it's studied, dissected, institutionalized, and then woven into the fabric of a meritocratic, a meritocratic society. And then contemporary phase when it begins to mold and kind of give way into new genres, new fusions, and new iterations, and then things that then start to go through that phase again. What was its originally intended purpose or its origin? How do we then institutionalize it? And why did it become institutionalized? And why do we create these standards around it? And what does that mean for society? And then again, goes through this process it's just a repeating cycle so to answer your question the reason why we need art and the reason why art exists is because we don't want to continue to repeat patterns that take people away from their from their roots from their cultures we don't want to take people away from the context that makes them who they are we want to be able to in this most primitive way express our emotions our thoughts our reactions to society around us, process things, celebrate things, mourn those that have left us, mourn tragedy, uh, work through these different things, right? Because at the end of the day, art is a snapshot of the society in which it was to which it was born, right? And so the more we dictate how people do this, the classicization phase, right? The less space and the more connectors to its originally intended purpose we lose, right? Roots musicians are integral. They're fun, critical to this preservation. You know, the preservationists, like people who do, you know, ethnomusicology, people who do um, ethnographic work in the context of the arts, they're integral because it's how we understand the way art interacted in its intent, originally intended purpose, the way that it fulfilled that original purpose, right? And so music is kind of 
I would say the same thing that people say about history. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Well, I would argue the same with art. Those who do not know the originally intended purpose of art, how it helps us process our emotions as humans, how it helps us connect to other people, how it helps us communicate without a common spoken language, are doomed to be in this constant state of isolation, this constant state of being unable to develop cultural competency, to be able to have that that intercultural communication that that you know and and be able to really develop that ability to collaborate with people across these borders that have been created over the course of millennia because of colonization so we run the risk of forgetting how to expand and how to grow and how to synthesize and how to ultimately maintain those connectors in society when we institutionalize art or when we erase their intended function or when we forget what their intention intended function is. So I would say music, art, all of it is the heartbeat of society, right? We have the structures, right? We have the history books, we have the words, we have the languages. But, you know, even when we think about language, I would say language, you know, and music and all these things, these are the, this is the heartbeat. This is the, 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 the circulation, like through the bodies and the structures that we actually exist within. So without that, you know, what are we really doing except walking through the world without as a, you know, as a shell of society, you know, we really need that context in order to feel like, okay, this is why we do this thing that has just been passed down generation to generation to generation for better or for worse. And use that to decide as a culture, as a society, do we want to keep this? Does this still make us feel something? Is it time for us to fuse this music or this art with somebody else's music or art? And that brings us back to the whole reason why creative tools are so important for every type of person, for every role in the village, because it's how we problem solve, how we synthesize our, our strengths, you know, how we offer our gifts to our communities and how we ultimately are able to find people like us in other communities, because we have that connection to what makes us who we are, art being that thread, being that, you know, heartbeat behind all of that. So those who do not know art and what it means to society, are doomed to lose that connection with where they came from. So that's why we have art. That's why we need to keep art, <laughs> keep on creating. <laughs> well, that is an absolutely perfect note to, to end on. Um, before I let you go, I just want to uh, ask where people can find you if they want to hear more of your ideas, if they want to follow your work, et cetera. Where should, they, where should they look to? Yeah, so I am online in a few different capacities. So um, as an artist, I wish I had something substantial up right now, but because it's been such a discovery and I've been really in my own being around developing and figuring out what my artistic identity is, I have not recorded an album yet, but that will change soon. Don't worry, y'all. But there's some things on YouTube, um, but I think the best way to follow me and my creative journey is my personal brand, which is Erin Corrine Does Things. I'm, you know, uh, with at Erin Corrine Does Things, one R, one N in Corrine, by the way, that's important on uh, both Facebook and Instagram. In terms of my thought leadership around coaching, around uh, creative mentorship, and just to kind of know what my practice is like and the way that I lead with my being and lead with identity as a coach, um, catch me on LinkedIn. That's where I'm living and spending a lot of my time these days. So that's um, linkedin.com slash in for individuals slash coach Aaron Corrine. Again, one R and one N. And also my company, which is Ola Magnolia. That's a, um, definitely the, that name embodies an entire kind of aha moment where I realized 
a lot of the things that I've been talking about today in terms of identity and my purpose and synthesizing all the things I am in my work. So that's olamagnolia.com, right? And that's the website for my coaching and anything that I could be potentially offering from season to season. And I will put out there that the beginning of 2023 will be the official rollout of my signature creative mentorship program, which does have levels. So those that are professional creatives and identify as such, there is an entire program framework for you. For those that want to incorporate creative tools, there's a whole framework for you as well. And then because I'm so passionate about social justice, there's a whole cohort that will be for Black artists, creators, um, thought leaders, and educators. And that will be my seedlings cohort, where the idea is to to launch my my reparation structure, which will mean that a huge portion of my business, a lot of the revenue is um, destined towards this cohort so that hopefully by the beginning of 2023, all of my um, Black and Indigenous artists, creatives, educators, and thought leaders will be fully funded to work through my signature mentorship program. So looking forward to that. A lot of stuff coming up, but that's olamagnolia.com to follow me. And if you go to olamagnolia.com slash join us, you can join my mailing list. Join um, then uh, hyphen us. Okay. Not join us one word, but join hyphen us. And then you can join my mailing list from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time just talking about all these ideas and expanding our understanding of art and creativity and decolonization and all that. It was a pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate you taking the time and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Thank you so much for the invitation, Tom. Yay, fellow Midwesterner. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. You too. Thank you so much.